are listening to the Issues on Appeal podcast, focusing on timely and timeless issues of appellate practice and professionalism. Here is your host, Dwayne Dyker. Thanks for joining me for episode 43, New Fonts. This show is again sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later in the show. This is going to be the first of two podcasts on the changes to Florida's appellate rules that took effect January 1, 2021 at 12.03 a.m. My guest, Tom Hall, is a former longtime clerk of the Florida Supreme Court, an appellate lawyer at the Bishop and Mills Law Firm in Tallahassee, Florida, and is uniquely qualified to talk about the history of font requirements in Florida's appellate rules and the process of amending the current rule. But first, I want to talk briefly about the amendments. There are two important changes relating to documents filed with Florida's appellate courts. The first is that all filings must now be presented in one of two available fonts, Bookman Old Style or Arial, both in a 14-point size. Now, interestingly, the font requirement has been removed from Rule 9.210, which concerns briefs, and it's now in a new rule, 9.045, entitled Form of Documents. This is an interesting change because the font requirements now seem to apply to all documents filed in appellate courts, not just briefs. So, while I think most practitioners did this anyway, now the rule makes it clear you always need to use these fonts. The rules have also been changed to replace page limits with a word count. For example, initial and answer briefs are now limited to 13,000 words instead of 50 pages. Reply briefs are limited to 4,000 words instead of 15 pages. Of course, you'll have to certify the number of words, and you can rely on the word count of your word processing system. But the question is, how did we get here? Why these fonts? And why these particular word count limits? I'll get to the bottom of all this with Tom Hall, coming up next. Tom Hall, thanks for joining me on the show again. Well, it's my pleasure to be here. So you were on the Appellate Court Rules Committee when the changes we were discussing uh, were made, and I wanted to get your thoughts on sort of the background and the motivations behind the rule change, but but first I wanted to back up a little bit, because I'm old enough, I've been practicing long enough to remember the last big rule change relating to fonts was back in 2001, and at that point the Appellate Rules settled on just two specific fonts, the Times New Roman 14-point and the less commonly used Courier New 12-point. And I know you remember this because you were, uh, although you were fairly newly appointed, you were the clerk of the Florida Supreme Court at that time. So can you tell us a little bit about the circumstances that led to, you know, the perceived need for limiting fonts and, and how that 2001 rule change came about? And then we'll talk about how that relates to today. Sure. Actually, um I don't know if you know, but actually, I was on the Pellet Rules Committee up until I became the clerk. Uh, so I was there on the committee until May of 2000. So I was, my recollection is they were talking about the fonts while I was still on the committee. And then when I became clerk, I had to step down from being actually on the committee. Although for years and years, I attended almost all the Pellet Court Rules Committee meetings. And part of what uh, changed that was there was, There was some recognition at that point, even that we were going to go electronic in the court systems. You know, as 
as you and I have talked about before, in Bush versus Gore, it was the first time that the court really started accepting briefs electronically. We devised an email at that address. We were, at first we wanted paper, then we wanted paper with a, and, and had to file a floppy disk along with it that had an electronic copy of the briefs. And then eventually we created an email, which we had to ask everybody to send in their electronic copy. So the court at that point was really starting to realize that people would start filing their briefs electronically. So font became a big issue when you are doing it electronically uh, as opposed to paper, because there are so many more things you can do to manipulate fonts. So there were some concerns in particular that fonts were being manipulated to change the page limit. In other words, by changing not only just the font, but the spacing and proportionality and all those sorts of things, uh, you could really change a 50-page brief to about a 53 or 55-page brief, but make it fit on 50 pages of paper. So there were some concerns about that, and that that was there. There were other reasons for doing it, but that was one of the things that certainly was taken into account in trying to solve that particular problem that was starting to arise. Yeah, because it was sort of the the wild west as far as fonts were concerned. Because the you know as we made this transition from typing and and even uh, fixed space, you know, daisy wheel printers and that kind of thing, into computer generated briefs. There weren't font requirements, so people were creative, right? If a if a twelve point Times Roman is is uh, doesn't provide enough space, maybe we can go eleven points, or maybe we can go ten points, or maybe we can adjust the kerning. So yeah, it did. It was a it was a, a fertile playground, I guess, for <laughs> manipulating fonts to to fit within page limits. Yeah, and I I think that really started happening from the time they. The transition of just sort of dedicated word processors where you had one, you know, your computer had a word processor on it and it wasn't, it wasn't word perfect or it wasn't word. It was whatever the word processing was on that particular style of computer you had. And they weren't compatible with each other either. And that was a major problem. People would, people would just pick all kinds of font sizes or types because they liked them and you would see briefs that had multiple different fonts throughout the thing where they were like, if they indented something, they would use a different font to bring emphasis to it, that sort of thing. The other thing that happened quite, it started happening a lot uh, was people started manipulating the line spacing, you know, as you had to have double spacing, but you could make it, you could make it like one and three quarter uh, and get a lot more words in 50 pages, a lot more, content in 50 pages than he could if he actually made it two line spaces. So there was just, and, and candidly, the briefs look crazy because people would pick just all kinds of crazy fonts to type their briefs in. So at some point there was a recognition we need to decide on two types or one type. And that's how that rule came about. Yeah. Fonts are like one of those things just because you can, doesn't mean you should, right? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. A script font that looks like handwriting doesn't mean it's a good idea. <laughs> right. And if you remember the original rule said you couldn't use uh, uh, fonts that look like handwriting. That's right. Nothing that imitated script or I forget exactly how it was phrased, but that's right. right. So clearly that was a problem. <laughs> yes. So how did they settle on uh, Courier and Times New Roman back in 2001? Well, my recollection is that the Times New Roman was one that was commonly in use uh, throughout 
um, the courts, uh, even in paper. Uh, it was one uh, that, I don't know why, but people just kind of commonly used it. And so it, I think it was the most common type in use at the time. And the courier knew, though, that came about because a lot of the government agencies, uh, I think particularly the public defender's offices, the appellate public defender's offices, used that. They did not have, uh, they were not as up to speed computer-wise as other people were. You have to remember back then, there were there were massive differences in the capability of government agencies in particular to be able to do computer work. When I worked at the first district court of appeal, I remember we were going to get new computers there and we set up a, a system where we were trying to donate all the old computers that we were getting rid of to the workers comp judges because the workers comp judges didn't have computers at all at the time. And that was like, you know, that was a little bef- that was like in the 1998, 1999, right before I left and went to the court. So you really, particularly the government agencies who had courier knew there was a strong feeling to continue to let that uh, be a font size that would be or font type that would be allowed. You know, I always wondered about that because even in 2001, courier was was a poor choice. I mean, you know, it was always a throwback looking choice, something that looked like you were, you know, typing on an IBM Selectric instead of word processing. But certainly the technology concerns of making sure the government wasn't left behind makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, I seem to recall as a practitioner during that time that the it wasn't at all controversial that the court picked Times New Roman because like you said, that was that was a staple. What seemed a little bit more, I don't know, controversial, but but people talked about was fourteen points. You know, and I remember as a as a thirty year old lawyer thinking, my gosh, fourteen points, that's ridiculous. Everybody uses twelve, fourteen is huge. And now as a 50-year-old lawyer, I appreciate the 14-point type. <laughs> yeah, listen, that 14-point type was literally driven specifically by uh, judges who were on the rules committee who wanted the type to be bigger to make it easier to read. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it really is a lot easier to read. Now, it does have the – it also has the effect of allowing less content within your 50 pages. Right. But, uh you know, so I, I, that was probably part of the controversy, I guess. You know, I don't know if it was really a controversy, but appellate practitioners were talking about, boy, we can fit less text in 50 pages now because we have to use this font and we have to use a big one, you know, right. but still 50 pages is a lot. Well, you know, this time when it, when it was changed, we actually, um, at one point, appellate rules approached uh, the Rules of Judicial Administration uh, Committee and tried to get what we were adopting to apply across the board at every level of the court. Uh, and that met great resistance from the trial courts where most things are still done. Uh, although there's no rule, uh, it's still done in Times New Roman 12. That's by far the most common thing that's used there. And we wanted to switch and have the two, but there was a lot of a lot of opposition to that. So ultimately appellate just decided to change the appellate rules because they, they couldn't get um, RJC to go along. Well, I, I mean, I guess it's always tough to build consensus. So that, that doesn't surprise me. 
Now, moving forward to today, I think we all understand in general terms that the, the current changes are driven in large part by the increase in, in screen reading, right? And a belief that Times New Roman, which is the overwhelming choice uh, for briefs, uh, is not as easy to read on screens as other fonts. But where did the current initiative come from? Uh, did it start with the court? Did it start with the Rules Committee? Like, what's the genesis of this change? Um, I think it started in the Rules Committee, although there were discussions, I remember, at the court about everything being ADA compliant. You know, the court had, I think, had already adopted the rule saying that things had to be ADA compliant because there was a statute passed in Florida that essentially adopted a state uh, American Disabilities Act and included uh, requirements that documents created by any Florida government agency, including the court systems, had to create an ADA compliant right from the beginning. You you did not have to ask, you did not have to wait for somebody to ask for an accommodation. You were required to create a document that was ADA compliant. And so there was some concern about what fonts might be ADA compliant. And we started looking at that, both the committee and I think the court was looking into it at the time. And we ultimately came to the conclusion that um, although some fonts are more readable than others electronically, there was no actual ADA guideline about computer fonts. There were ADA guidelines for other things, such as signs that were posted for various reasons that people need to be able to read a sign posted by a government agency that certain kinds of fonts uh, particularly sans serif, were easier to read than others. But there was actually no guidelines for computer-generated uh, type or stuff that was going to be read on a computer. And then ultimately, of course, um, the various reader things like Adobe Reader and some of those things that will read the document to you um, solve the ADA problem, at least from the Rules Committee's perspective, uh, for electronic briefs. So ultimately we moved to rather than trying to be particularly ADA compliant, although, you know, we still have a requirement it is, we were moved to trying to figure out which, uh, which fonts would be the most readable in paper. Uh, I mean, most readable on the computer as opposed to paper. Today's show is sponsored by Court Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact CSBA. They can be reached at 877-810-5525, and their contact information is always in the show notes. I'm thrilled to have a great company like CSBA as a longtime sponsor of the podcast. CSBA is a national agency assists with court bonds all over the United States, but has extensive experience in Florida. I suggest you take a moment, visit their website, courtsurety.com. It's full of valuable resources, including a state-by-state guide to appeal bond requirements and a comprehensive FAQ on collateral, underwriting, and the application process. The next time a client needs a supersedious bond, please give Court Surety Bond Agency a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process giving you one less thing to worry about. I assume it was a rules committee that came up with the the font selection. 
Yes. And the way we went about that was we decided that the people who read briefs the most are the judges on the district courts of appeal. Um, I don't know if you've ever saw it, but uh, Judge uh, Bill Van Nortwick uh, used to give a great presentation uh, at various CLEs about how you how much time judges spend actually reading and how because he, he did this great calculation where he said, you know, I'm assigned X number of cases and, you know, there's going to be three briefs in each of those cases. And the average length of the briefs is, you know, X, you know, Y number of pages. And that means that I got to read these, you know, million pages a year or whatever the number was. And he said, if you divide that time up, you know, the reality is that once I finish reading everything, I don't have much time to actually write opinions. Uh, it was, and so, we were convinced that they were the ones that were going to be reading this stuff the most. There had been, we'd had presentations from at, at various CLEs about how your eye does perceive uh, something different on a screen than it does on a piece of paper. You know, the, the whole the thing, it's called the F model where on a screen, you, it, t- your eye tends to look in this at the document as like an F you see the stuff across the top and then down the left side and then across the middle where if you're looking at a piece of paper you tend to see it in the middle and and not the edges so much so we were conscious of that sort of stuff and so we asked the district court of appeal judges what they thought we originally as my recollection is we sent something to each of the district courts and said and asked what they thought we came back with a multiple choice, kind of a whole list of documents. And then ultimately, we my recollection is we sent it to every current district court of appeal judge and asked them to pick two fonts based on that where there were two existing fonts. And uh, the two that came back pretty overwhelmingly um, to be the favorites among them were the ones we ended up with. Yeah, Bookman and uh, uh, Ariel. So there was not a specific desire to come up with one serif font and one sans serif font. Those are just the two that that rose to the top in the preference polls? Yeah, that's right. Hmm. It's interesting that it turns out that way, you know, that that one's a serif and one's a sans serif font, because we never... We'd never had a sans serif option before, so it's it's that's one of the things that makes Ariel sort of interesting as a choice. Yeah, and you know there were there. It's interesting because even on the committee, there were really strong feelings about. Uh, you know, I personally don't like Arial. It it um, it looks like everything is in bold to me. Uh, I I don't know why it looks like that, but it does. And uh, you know, th- people just had strong feelings about it. But that's why we ultimately just decided to go with the two that were the biggest vote getters and pretty much leave it at that. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I didn't realize that it was a a uh, preference as opposed to, you know, some academic study of what was most most legible or something like that. It's a, it's actually a a reflection of the the current appellate judiciary's preferences. Yeah, and it's interesting to see if we if we ran the poll now, would we get the same results? Too, uh, I'm not sure we would. You know, we. Some of us did, for sure, look at what was most readable, uh, hoping that there would be studies out there that would just like, oh, here are the two most readable when reading on a computer. And um, we found very quickly 
that um, like any other kinds of things or many other kinds of things that you research on the web, you can find pretty much any answer you want. Uh, there is no definitive study. And if you just search for most readable fonts, for example, you will find all kinds of websites that say this font is the most readable or that one's the most readable, et cetera. Uh, and, you know, there's, and certainly there's a difference, you know, even those will say, well, this is the most readable if you're looking at paper, but this one is the most readable if you're on a computer. And this one's most readable if you're looking at a web site as opposed to like a document, like a brief. It, you can, I mean, really, you can spend tons of time and pretty much justify any you wanted. Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that's interesting about Bookman is it's not a uh, high tech new font. I mean, it's a very old font that has been used, um, you know, f- for a long time in print that just also happens to be very good on for screen reading. Yeah. It, it's, uh, I think the research on it shows that it was for many, many years, it was the most common, uh, well, maybe not the most, but one of the most common used in books. Um, right. I saw that. Meaning that mm-hmm. publishing companies used it. Uh, it was one of the most common. And, you know, there are fonts that I, that I didn't know any of this until we started looking at. There are fonts that have been designed by the, by the computer, by Microsoft and, and by Apple, uh, the, in, whoever else does that sort of stuff. Uh, and some of those are designed really, really for reading on computers. And they are, and if you go look at them, like Georgia is one of them, which I'd never heard of before. Uh, it's a, it's a very, very readable thing in a web page. Uh, you can really tell a difference. Uh, it's very distinguishable. Um, but there's just all kinds of others that are very readable. I actually, and I'm going to miss the name is, the, um, it's century something, which I should look this up, but, um, it's the one the United States Supreme Court uses. I thought that would be a good one. It's a very readable thought, font. I thought that would be a good one to use. And then that way, you know, you, you wouldn't have to change. If you're going to go to the U.S. Supreme Court, you wouldn't have to change. Of course, the 11th Circuit still has Times New Roman. So um, you would have had to change for that. You're going to have to change for them anyway. Century School Book, I think, is what yeah. the uh, Yeah, I think that's right. Century School Book uh, is it. Yeah, it's interesting to me that the 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 Bookman font, I, I, I like it. Um it's it takes a little bit of getting used to because you look at Times Roman for so long, but it's it's similar uh, to Times Roman, but it definitely has more spacing. It's more open. It's more sort of uh, you know space between letters and such, more white space, which I think is probably what leads what leads to you know higher readability. Yeah, there's there's no question. I don't know if you've uh, I've seen a similar presentation by a bunch of people but when the appellate practice section a few years ago put on a full day thing devoted entirely to technology for appellate lawyers um judge may from the fourth dca came and gave an excellent presentation about what it was like to read on computers as an appellate judge and how once once the font changed and the word count because the word count is the key to getting more space once that came into effect, that lawyers really needed to think about that and write with a lot more white space on their briefs. 
you know, for example, if you're going to have a list of five things, don't list them in a sentence. Make them a bulleted list because you don't have to worry about the page limit anymore. That makes it much easier to read. Um, and so th- we had some thoughts about that sort of stuff as well when we were thinking about the redesign and the choosing the fonts. Well, so that's a great transition. That's what I wanted to talk to you about next. At the, at the same time, the rules are also changing to uh, so that the length requirements or, or uh, maximums, I guess, for a brief are now expressed in terms of word count instead of pages, which obviously that does give the ability to do more with white space and headings and spacing and that kind of thing. Was that all considered at the same time? I mean, was the was the change to a word count sort of integral to the font change, or was that a separate uh, you know topic when in the rule change? My recollection is that was all part of the same thing. Is that there had been some movement before that to change to a word count when the federal courts changed the word count, um, sort of never grain steam, but when when you start thinking about changing the font, then it's kind of natural to also start thinking about changing the count and go to a word count. Um, and so it just sort of wrote along. They ended up writing along together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it does make sense. If, if you want to encourage more white space, um, then you got to get away from the strict page limitations, but uh, yeah, you don't have, no, to, have to increase the, the, the length of the content, but you know, the, uh, going to a word count makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and and I mean, I don't. People probably haven't started really focusing on this yet because they don't have to file briefs and in the new fonts and new word and to do the word count until uh, January first. Yeah. Um, but really, uh, if you change a if you change a brief that was a fifty page brief in Times New Roman to Bookman, uh, it's that brief is in pages is substantially longer, um, but the, con- the the content's no longer. It's exactly the same content, exact. I mean, just perfectly the same content. So you just can't think about how long the pages are. You just have to think about how much content is there, and the content is going to be exactly the same. So d- does that mean though that uh, is thirteen thousand words? Do you think that that is as a practical matter, a shortening of the of what's permitted. You know, I wasn't personally involved in the calculation of that number. I know there was a subcommittee or some some members of one of the subcommittees that looked specifically at that and figured out the fifty page brief and how many words that would be. Uh, they, they certainly looked at the federal system and how what their count was and all of those things. I don't think there was a direct mathematical formula. I think they came out to some approximate number and then candidly added on a little tiny bit to, so that it, so that it wouldn't, so that it wouldn't shorten the content. Um, and I think that's how they ended up with it. And I, and I, you know, we, there were, I remember there being quite a bit of discussion in the actual rules committee about that particular thing about, is this going to shorten it up? or not. And the people who had really worked on it in detail said, no, it wouldn't. Um, so I haven't, I haven't tested it yet. I've got, it's interesting. I've got, I don't have, I personally don't have any briefs that are due. Our firm has some briefs that are due. You know, the rule changes 
is critical too because if you file your brief before January 1st you have you have to file in the old you can't file in the new although our firm saw somebody else from another firm file one the other day in the new font <laughs> court took it didn't do anything about it we don't intend to do anything about it no but technically that's wrong yeah but um but I've got a rules comment that I'm working on that's going to be pretty extensive in a case uh and I've already I I took a draft that our trial attorney sent us, you know, and I just because I knew it was going to be filed after January 4th and I converted to the different type style and it it made it quite a bit longer. But, um, you know, and I went in and already started making them some bulleted lists and moving a few things around. I'm going to I'm definitely going to put uh, some documents. I'm going to, you know, b- build them into the thing. Um because there's a couple of key things that are critical to that rule that I want the court to just be able to see it like it actually is in the brief. Um, so, you know, there that's one of those things you're just going to have to take into account as you start doing this. But but I, I think the word count ultimately is going to be a lot better for us all. I really do. I think so, too. And and I guess so. So what you're saying is, as best you recall, the the, the word counts that were imposed, like 13,000 words for an initial answer brief, there was no conscious attempt there to make brief shorter. It was the attempt was to approximate or maybe slightly more generous than what's currently available. Yeah, absolutely. No, there was definitely there was a conscious uh, effort to not make it shorter. Yeah. You know, you raise a point that I hadn't thought about yet, which is I, I sometimes like to insert um, uh, images from the record into a brief. Like if it's a particularly important segment of a contract, I will uh, cut that out and, and put it in as a, as a JPEG file, you know, in line in the brief. And that's interesting because there's no characters there, <laughs> even though I'm I'm picturing I have a, a picture of characters. It's not going to show up in my word count on my brief. But do I have to include that? I don't know. Right. That's kind of an interesting um, uh, conundrum. There is a, is a graphic that contains text. Does that have to be counted as a part of my text limits? Well, I believe, gosh, I should know this, but uh, I believe the rule says that you can rely on the word count that your computer does. Oh, I, you may be right. I think the federal rules definitely say that. Yeah, I'm pretty sure the state rule says that. Um, so I think I think it wouldn't count. But, you know, I think one of the things the court would become conscious of, like we were back in 2000, is if people are starting to use that to manipulate the word count, uh, it could be problematic. So. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess there's always, you know, leave it to us lawyers to always find some way to <laughs> manipulate the rules. But, you know, listen, I'm filing a, a, a 50 page brief or in this case, a 13,000 word brief. I'm, I'm not very happy about it to start with. So I definitely don't want to push the, I, I personally don't want to push the limits. <laughs> well, and you know, as a very experienced lawyer, that the one thing you don't want to do is file a brief that's right at the word limit or right at the page limit. You know, those appellate judges appreciate much shorter briefs. They do. No yeah, they definitely do. So have you gotten any any feedback? I mean, how do you think the rule is being received? I mean, we'll know better um, next month and in the months that follow as people really start to work with the rule. But what's your what's your feeling as to the, you know, the reaction of, of Florida appellate lawyers to these changes? 
I think overall, I mean, the stuff that I'm hearing, uh, it seems to be either positive or pretty neutral. I remember that um, some lawyer wrote a letter to the editor of the Florida Bar News complaining that um, that lawyers weren't surveyed to see what they thought, because lawyers read a lot of briefs, too, which is totally correct. Um, but we, you know, ultimately, as I said earlier, we decided that people who read it most are the DCA judges, and that's who we thought we should get the feedback from. Um, I I think once people get used to it, I don't, I don't think there's going to be that big of a change much one way or the other. You know, it's a, um, I know that my, uh, my own thought is, as I said, it allows you because of the word count and the combination of the font and the bigger font, which is easier to read. It allows you to create a brief that is easier to read. And I think people are going to appellate lawyers who practice a lot are going to have to become much better at learning to create in essence, a, a graphic that's better, easier to read for people to read on the computer all the time, as opposed to this document, which is what you're creating when you create a brief. We have to have a little bit of a change in focus, right? To, to, utilize these things to to these changes in the rules to to make better briefs better briefs that are better for screen reading and better for judges and you know in the end better for all of us yeah absolutely because we're going to read a lot of those briefs too so i want them to be easy to read so i take it from your comments before that when you file your your first brief under the new rules that you'll be using the uh, bookman old style yes um yeah our firm looked at it and we decided to you to for everybody in the firm to use the same style and we're going to use bookman it's it's interesting there i have seen some studies and we've actually talked about i talked about this on a prior version of the podcast with uh, manon fogarty who's uh, she's uh, the grammar girl uh she has a well-known podcast we talked about fonts a little bit and she told me that she has seen some studies and i can try and link to them in the show notes that say that serif fonts um, have more credibility to readers than sans serif fonts, which makes some sense because they're a little bit more formal and a little more official and they look more like they rolled off a printing press and that kind of thing. And But that's kind of interesting, right? Because we want our briefs to seem credible. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was going to say the same thing. Is I, I think that relates back to people still tend to give a, a more credit to something that's in a book than on the computer screen. Yeah. Well, that is, I don't know, but I think there is something to be said for that. Definitely. It's hard to change human nature. Yeah. Well, thanks, Tom. I really appreciate your thoughts on this. And, you know, like you said, I, I think that in a short period of time, this will all seem very normal and the changes will all be, you know, good and beneficial for us. But as a, as a pellet uh, geeks, we'll, you know, we'll talk about it a lot. We'll, get a podcast or two out of it uh, as we all sort of uh, stake our claim on fonts and that sort of thing. But ultimately this, this should be a good deal. And I, I really appreciate uh, your time and your thoughts. Hey, no problem. I'm, I was going to say that, you know, we, in um, April of 2013, we were required to start e-filing electronically and right now none of us would give it up. That's right. <laughs> All that seems like so long ago and, and so antiquated, and it's just made our jobs easier. Yep, for sure. I think this will, too. 
Thanks to Tom Hall for sharing his knowledge on these interesting changes to Florida's appellate rules. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice, and nothing that I say or my guests say should ever be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help. My contact information is always in the show notes. And please consider using our sponsor, Court Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information is also in the show notes. Please take a moment, add it to your contacts so you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. This is the first podcast episode of 2021. Next week, we'll delve a little bit deeper into the font changes and the implications for the practice. If you're really into this stuff, I think you'll love it. The next episode will be out in two weeks. I hope that you will continue to download and listen. Thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal. 